Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read uh, from verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. We want to uh, have a question answered. 4.3 billion people in our world turn to Google, the internet search engine. Google has 40,000 search queries per second. Uh, To save you doing the maths, that means 1.2 trillion searches every year. The most asked question on Google, what to watch. But Google doesn't answer every question. And perhaps someone uh, can't find the answer to this question on Google, but they ask you. And the question they ask you is this. What is it like to live the Christian life? What is it like to live the Christian life? How would you answer that question? What does the Christian life look like day in and day out? And that's a question that Paul answers in the second part of his letter to the Galatians. This letter to the Galatians is broadly divided into two parts. In the first part running through the first four chapters, Paul answers the question, what is a Christian? And here he emphasizes that when a person becomes a Christian, they undergo a change of status. Uh, Through faith, we are justified in God's sight, as by His grace He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. We now have a new status, a new standing in God's sight, and it is an unalterable legal verdict that has been passed. It cannot and it will not be overturned. There's nothing we can do to forfeit that verdict, there's nothing that we can do to enhance that verdict. But then in the second part of the letter, beginning in chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul points out that when a person becomes a Christian, they not only undergo a change of status, but they also undergo a change of nature. And through the miracle of God's grace, we are born again by the Holy Spirit. We're we're sanctified, we're, we're made holy in the sense that we're now set apart for God Himself. 
But we're also being sanctified and made holy in the sense that God is gradually transforming us. He's gradually transforming us into the image and the likeness of His Son. That process that He conducts in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that work continues throughout our lives until we reach glory. Until we at last see Jesus as He is. For we shall be like Him. And it's this process of sanctification, this process of transformation through the Holy Spirit that Paul deals with in this passage that we've read together this morning. In doing so, he tells us what it's like to live the Christian life. He begins this section in verse 16 by saying, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And he ends the section of verse 25 by saying, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What is it like to live the Christian life? It is to live life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us between these two statements in verse 16 and verse 25 what it looks like to live by the Spirit. And so what I hope to do over a couple of Sunday mornings, uh, I'm here this morning obviously, uh, I'll be back again uh, in a couple of weeks, and uh, what I want us to, to think about over those two Sunday mornings is what Paul tells us in this section about what it means to live life in the power of the Holy Spirit, or what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that we need to notice here in verse 16 is that we are made alive through the Spirit. We're made alive through the Spirit. Paul has already announced the great charter of Christian freedom back in chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But now in verse 16, he announces the great charter of Christian living. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is how, as Christians, we are to live the Christian life. We're to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, who now lives in us. And Paul writes that if we do that, if we live like that, then we won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We won't gratify the flesh. And we won't do so, he says, because the sinful nature, in verse 17, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. There is, he's telling us, a fundamental conflict between the way of the Holy Spirit and the way of the sinful nature. There are two principles at work, and they're moving in opposite trajectories. When an aircraft is on the ground, it sits there because of the effects of gravity. But when it takes off, another force is at work, that of the upward thrust, a thrust that defies the force of gravity. Gravity's still at work, but here's another conflicting force that enables the aircraft to overcome the effects of gravity. And so it is for Christians… They have been under the effects of the sinful nature. They've been weighed down by its power. And that old principle of sin is still there, but now a new force, a new power has come into effect in their lives. A more powerful force, which is opposed to the sinful nature. 
and which enables a Christian to live a new life. Now, we must grasp this this morning as Christians, that we are those in whom a new powerful force is now at work, the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what it means this morning to be a Christian, that we have been born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. People sometimes talk about born-again Christians. Well, the truth is we have no need to speak of born-again Christians. For the very definition of a Christian is that that is someone who has been born again. To talk about being a born-again Christian is rather like talking about a round circle. There's no other kind of circle. Roundness is the very essence of a circle. And being born again is the very essence of being a Christian. I remember uh, being in the Catholic bookshop in Dublin, and it was warning people, little booklets warning people against being born-again Christians. But even the Catholic Church believes that a Christian is born again. It teaches that someone is born again when they are baptized. The new birth occurs at baptism. They acknowledge that a Christian by their very nature is born again. And every major part of the Christian church teaches the same. You must be born again if you're to be a Christian. And as Christians this morning, we must understand this. Though we are those who have been born again by the gracious activity of the Holy Spirit. And as that occurs, two important truths follow. And the first is we must understand that this new birth is powerful. This new birth is powerful. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 19 through to 21, puts it this way. He says, that power that is now at work within you is like the work of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. You see, here, Paul is saying, is the force of the power that is now at work within us as Christians. Under the rule of sin, we were, we were spiritual corpses. But now... But now God has raised us from the dead. And he has done so with that same mighty power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead and seating him above all authorities and powers. We must not doubt the magnitude of what God has done for us this morning through the miracle of the new birth. The only reason this morning that any of us are Christians it is because God has worked in our lives. He has worked in our lives with a power that is comparable to the power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. The new birth is powerful. But secondly, the new birth ends the rule of sin. Writing to the Romans, Paul says in Romans 6 and 14, Sin shall not be your master. Because you are not under law, but under grace. 
The rule of sin in our lives is now broken. We now live under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, who administers that rule through his indwelling spirit. And Paul says, realizing these things, that we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he has ended the dominion of sin in our lives. He says we must now live by the Spirit. We must now live under the rule and the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And it is such a Spirit-filled, Spirit-directed life, he says, that will keep us from gratifying the old sinful nature. Now, these two truths, the mighty power that is now at work within us, that sin's dominion is ended, are immensely helpful to us. Understanding these things are immensely helpful to us in our struggles with sin. In the face of sin and temptation, we must go back to these two truths repeatedly to understand that we can resist temptation. We can resist temptation. We can stand firm because of the mighty power of the Spirit who is at work within us, because sin's rule has now been broken in our lives. And I think we need to keep these things in mind. As the well-known preacher and author Sinclair Ferguson says, we need to remember who the Spirit is who is at now at work within us. We need to remember who the Spirit is who is now at work within us. He is the Spirit of Christ. He is the Spirit of Christ who has met, fought, beaten, and broken the power of Satan. And as we seek to live the Christian life, we should meditate upon these great truths. Our life is now life in the Spirit. That mighty power is now at work within us. And sin's rule in our lives has been broken. But although sin's power and rule is broken in the life of the Christian, that's not the whole story. Because secondly, as Paul points out in verse 17, the reality is, although the power and dominion of sin are broken, we still experience the desires of the sinful nature in our lives. We still experience the inner conflict between our new spiritual nature and the old sinful nature. And this is an important truth, I think, for us to confront this morning. The reality of the ongoing struggle with sin in our lives. If we fail to do that, if we fail to recognize that and acknowledge that, then a number of things can happen. First of all, we can descend into legalism. I'm sure you know the old story about the Sunday school teacher telling her class the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And she ends up by saying, now let's pray and thanks God that we're not like the Pharisee. Well, that is exactly us. We become smug legalists. Sin? Well, that's what other people do. And we can end up congratulating ourselves, oh, we don't smoke or drink or go to clubs or watch pornography, and certainly nobody in our family does that. We settle for superficial law-keeping. 
But of course, as Jesus exposes legalism repeatedly in the Gospels, we see that legalism is a lie. It's nothing more than an attempt to, to keep up appearances. It's a life devoid of spiritual desire, of spiritual reality. It's spiritually lifeless. And this morning, if you don't acknowledge that you're struggling with sin in your life, then you're lying to God. You're lying to yourself. And you're lying to other people. And Jesus warns us that such a life is hollow and actually rotting on the inside. But secondly, we fail to recognize and acknowledge that struggle with sin. We cause others to struggle then for assurance. The failure to acknowledge that sin is still a powerful force in our lives and that we are in conflict leads people to struggle for that assurance. If we're leading a life where we're saying to other people that what you see on the surface is the reality, then we will lead others, especially younger Christians, into a false view of the Christian life. Why? Because people will look at our lives and say, look at him. Look at him. He, he's so godly. He can't have any struggles with sin. But that impression of godliness is nothing more nothing more than a veneer of respectability. And so others will become discouraged. They will become despairing because they know they have deep and dark inner struggles. They think, I could never be like that. But thirdly, if we do this, we, we give a false impression of the gospel. Whilst we fail to acknowledge the reality of our struggle with sin as Christians, we give a false impression of the gospel. We give the impression that the gospel isn't for sinners, but it's for people like us. It's for people like us who, who have it all together. We give the impression that the gospel is not for that woman who's in a messy relationship. It's not for that addict that keeps relapsing. It's not for that person whose marriage ended in disaster. It's not for that person who's in the sex offenders register. It's not for that person with profound doubts and questions. It's not for the person who struggles with their sexual identity. Because the gospel is all about respectability. But fourthly, not only do we give a false impression of the gospel, we deny its power. We deny its power. We give the impression that the gospel is merely something that sits on the surface of our lives. That does not go down deep into a person's soul and change them. We give the impression that the gospel is far removed from the profound struggles and issues of human existence. For as far as the untrained eye can see, nothing profound has happened to us. There's nothing different about us, and Sunday by Sunday we might as well sit in the golf club as sit in the church. But once we begin to acknowledge once we begin to acknowledge that the battle with sin in our life is real, that the struggles are real and perfected and profound, and that amidst the struggles we know the power of the indwelling Spirit, and we know the end of sin's dominion, then we have a message for other people. We have a message for other people. A message that engages with the messy reality of human existence. You see, a Christian is not someone who has got their act together. They're not someone who, who's content to, to keep up appearances. 
There's someone who acknowledges that they have a profound sin problem. And even though they know the power of the indwelling Spirit in their lives, even though they know that sin's dominion is now ended, they're engaged in that daily struggle, that daily struggle with the ongoing sin in their lives. That day by day, just as they pray, give us our daily bread, they also have to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Struggles with lust, Greed, envy, hatred, selfish ambition. Struggles with self-esteem and consumerism and self-righteousness and self-love and pride. Struggles with alcohol, pornography and addiction. Struggles with racism, sexism, sectarianism. Every Christian is engaged in numerous struggles with the old sinful nature. Struggles that reveal themselves in many ways. If you do not believe that Christians are involved in profound struggles with sin and temptation in their lives, struggles in which they're sometimes overcome, but then you're in a dangerous situation. You're in a dangerous situation. For you don't know your own heart. You don't know your own heart. The Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer once remarked, a Christian should never be someone who says, I am shocked at another person's behavior. For as he says, a Christian who says, I am shocked, that simply means that they don't understand the sin in their own heart. This morning, if you know profound struggles with sin in your life, then know you're not alone. You're not alone. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Paul's saying Christians know the reality. They know the reality of struggling with sin in their lives. We all face the same struggles, the same temptations, the same failures, the same besetting sins. We all have to deal with these. The conflict is there because although we're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the old sinful nature is still present and still active to such an extent that Paul writes in verse 17, so that you do not do what you want. You want to obey Christ. You want to know the end of sin. You want to experience that. And yet you do know the reality of failure. This morning, if you feel the heat of this battle, if you feel the challenge of this struggle, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That is the reality of everyday Christian living. But do be afraid if you know nothing of that battle, if you know nothing of that struggle. Because that means you're simply gliding along on the surface. You're simply content to keep up appearances. If you know the reality, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because that is the daily nature of living the Christian life. And that's what drives us back time and time again to the gospel. Well, thirdly, Paul then writes about following the Spirit. Although as Christians we find ourselves caught in this conflict within, although there is war within, although sin is still active, although sin is still powerful, the good news is that it's not the same as before we were Christians. As we've seen, becoming a Christian brings a radical change. There is now a new power that is at work in our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and the dominion of sin, the rule of sin on our lives has been broken. So although sin still troubles us, it no longer rules in our lives. We must understand how things have now changed. For Paul writes in verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Our lives are now changed because we're now led by the Spirit. Our lives are now shaped by the victory that Christ has won and by the triumphant Spirit who now dwells within us. Paul says the conflict is there, but it's not like it was before. We're not under the law. We're not now trying to live a life where we're trying to earn our salvation by keeping the law, where every failure reminds us that we fall short of God's glory. We're no longer enslaved by the law, a law that we're powerless to keep. We are now led by the Spirit who dwells within us. And as Paul speaks about being led by the Spirit, we must listen carefully to what he says. First of all, we must understand that although he speaks of being led by the Spirit in the passive voice, he's not suggesting that the work of the Spirit in our lives is like some kind of self-generating motor. You switch it on and away you go. Instead, it's clear from what Paul writes that being led by the Spirit means following the lead of the Spirit. Following the lead of the Spirit. This is clear from verse 16 where he says, live by the Spirit. It's a command. It's a command to be obeyed. Again, verse 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It is a command to be obeyed. In other words, being led by the Spirit requires a response on our part. We're, we're not passive. If we're led by the Spirit, then we must seek to follow the Spirit. We must strive to keep in step with the Spirit. There's effort involved in our part. I don't know if you've ever been with someone and they, they've said, you're saying, well, I need to go to such and such a place. And they say, follow me. Well, that requires an effort, doesn't it? You actually actively have to follow. And that's what Paul's saying here. Yes, the Spirit is at work within you, but you must now follow his leading. That involves effort. It involves activity on your part. But secondly, importantly, being led by the Spirit is not then some kind of mystical experience. This is how being led by the Spirit appears to some people. They will tell you that they've been led by the Spirit to do certain things. Or the Spirit has told them to do certain things. And of course, there are occasions when people find themselves prompted by the Holy Spirit to, to behave in certain ways that may not have occurred to them naturally. But that is not essentially what being led by the Holy Spirit means. Rather, for Paul, being led by the Spirit means following Him. Following Him into a life of holiness. It doesn't mean you have to wait for some mysterious prompting. But you need to be committed to living a holy and a godly life. Furthermore, being led by the Spirit doesn't require us to wait upon Him to prompt us. Because the Holy Spirit tells us directly what to do. Because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Peter says of the Old Testament, 1 Peter 1 and 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Similarly, and Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is the Spirit of God on a page. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If we want to know what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do, then we needn't look no further than the Bible, of which he is author. Jonathan Edwards was one of the most famous evangelical preachers of all time. During his ministry in the 18th century in Northampton, Massachusetts, his congregation underwent two seasons of revival. And in the second of these seasons, as the Holy Spirit worked and many people came to faith, many unusual phenomena took place, such as shaking and laughing and weeping and shouting, etc., etc. But after the seasons of revival had passed, Edwards became troubled. They became troubled because many of those who had experienced those unusual phenomena then seemed to revert to careless, godless living. So how could they have experienced these phenomena that seemed to be the, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and yet revert to this careless and godless living? He was troubled. In, a, in typical fashion, Edwards carried out a very careful investigation of this. If you want to read the works of Jonathan Edwards, they run to about 72 volumes. So, I mean, here's a man who really dug into things. And he came to an interesting conclusion. He concluded that just about all the phenomena that people associated with the work of the Holy Spirit during the revival could be faked. It could be faked. He didn't deny that these phenomena could be real, but he said they could also be faked through the influence of Satan. And he concluded that the only thing that could not be faked was obedience to God. The only thing that could not be faked was obedience to God. Because Satan does not lead anyone to obey God. Obedience to God's word, in other words, he's telling us is the real sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. It is the real sign that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is the real sign that we're seeking to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. If we are Christians this morning, then we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he has broken sin's rule in our lives. We are now led by the Spirit. That doesn't mean that we're not troubled by sin. But it does mean that we're up for a fight. We're up for a fight to get rid of sin and to follow the leading of the Spirit and to have him rule in our lives. And how do we follow his leading? We follow his leading whenever we gladly submit to what the Word of God teaches us. When we do that, we're keeping in step with the Spirit. May God bless his Word to our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word to us. Father, we do thank you for the reminder of the deep, profound work that you've done in each of our lives that you have given us a new birth unto a living hope through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That that power is now at work within us, like the power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. And Father, we pray that you would help us to work out in our lives what exactly that means. That, Father, we now have a new force at work within us. That we are now able to resist sin and temptation to stand firm in the faith and to follow the Holy Spirit in obedience to your word. Father, write these lessons upon our hearts. And Father, where we struggle with sin and temptation in our lives, 
Father, where we know that weakness in our lives, might we also be more conscious of your power at work within us. Father, do strengthen each one of us. Father, do help us, we pray, to turn time and time again to the gospel, to the reality of all that you have accomplished in our lives, that you have canceled sin and broken its power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.